last week we considered that all things work together for the good of God's people and we began looking at the worst things we were able to see that there are two things there under the worst things you have temptations and you have sin we saw that temptation works for the good of believers because it humbles them it causes them to search their hearts it makes them prayerful it helps them draw nigh to god it helps them long for heaven and it 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 enables the christian to be able to uh, sympathize and help those who are tempted in a similar fashion then we were able to see that sins also work for the good of the christian so that they produce a holy sorrow against sin uh, they produce a particular praying against sin um, they produce stronger opposition against sin and they make us work out our salvation even more our sins work for our own good and we also saw that the sins of others work for our own good today i'd like us to consider just one thing under uh, this title of all things working together for the good of god's people the worst things i'd like us to consider that afflictions work for the good of god's people afflictions work for the good of god's people now in this in this um let me say that just as i, I had said last week we we don't believe that the worst things are good because they work for the good of God's people. Um, and we were able to see that the very fact that they are the worst things, they cannot be good. They, they, they begin by being bad and they get worse and they, they, then they become the worst things. And we, we, we were able to see that what we mean here is that God takes the worst things and uh, fashions them in such a way that they would work out for the good of the Christian. He overrules the evil in them and produces good out of them. In this final aspect, I'd like to start by saying that I don't think we ought to consider the matter of affliction lightly. Um, when we say that afflictions work for the good of the believer, we shouldn't we shouldn't think of of it in a light manner you know it's, it's it's not a it's not a light thing because people go through all sorts of afflictions and these afflictions are real in their lives they struggle they are in pain because of their afflictions and thus then there's a sense in which even as i bring this to you i want to be very careful and i also want you to think about them very carefully so that we don't make afflictions a light matter or a thing that can be easily dismissed afflictions are real and to consider how they work for our good is absolutely important especially for the grounding of our faith now before we consider some some things that i have uh, i have prepared to bring before you here i like to bring uh, 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 to you the awareness that afflictions humble us affliction creates a certain 
humbling. They humble us because of at least two things. They humble us because they show us that God is at work in the afflictions that we may be going through. Go with me to Job, the book of Job. Chapter 1. Job, chapter 1. Job, you know the story of Job. Job goes through the afflictions that he goes through. And Job makes a very, he makes a, a, a very important statement concerning this whole matter of afflictions. There in chapter 1, verse 21. He has been attacked the first time. Um, he has lost what he has lost. And then in verse 20 of the first chapter, we are told there, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. Very important. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. Now the last statement there is what I want you to pay attention to. He says, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And, and we know that statement. It sounds very grand. It can even be like a cliche to some. But what I'd like you to notice there is that Job does not say the Lord gave and then the devil took away. Job says that it is the Lord who gives and it is the Lord who has taken away. Uh, 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 so that he may be meaning that uh, God has given and God has afflicted. God has blessed and God has afflicted. And thus then, um, the hand of God is in all the afflictions that we face. Especially as God's people, we who have been saved, we who have been redeemed, we have been forgiven of our sins, we who are called God's children. God has his hand in the difficulties that we face. Now, this is a very solemn thing. It's so solemn that I, I don't want to ask you questions. I want you to think. I want you to meditate upon what we will be considering this morning. The hand of God is in what, what we may be facing. Whatever trouble you may be going through, God's hand is in it. That's what Job declares here. It's also humbling, uh, it's also humbling to know that all our afflictions work for our good. Now, the tendency with the human heart is to dismiss afflictions, to, to cry out, to complain, grumble, mama even. And you know, all murmuring and grumbling is a murmuring and grumbling against God himself, the creator of the universe. So that it ought to humble us to know that actually God tells us that the afflictions that we go through are for our good. So that in the end of all the things that we may be facing as God's people, one thing that should be sure in our hearts, that we ought to be sure about, is that 
this, even this that I may be facing or going through, God is orchestrating events, working through it in such a way that it will, it will be for my good. So it is a humbling thing. The psalmist in Psalm 119, you know that the longest uh, chapter in the Bible is Psalm 119. In Psalm 119 verse 71, the psalmist says something that is that is not uh, is not loved by many. Psalm 119 verse 71, we're told there, or the psalmist says, it is good for me that I was afflicted. Who's, who says that? That it's good that I was afflicted. It's only a person who understands and knows who God is. Especially knowing that God's hand is in everything that we go through. Even the afflictions. So what he says, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. That statement right there tells us that all things work together for the good of God's people. Even the afflictions that they face. Afflictions that you face. The afflictions that you go through. God has so ordained them or brings them that you may learn. You may learn the statutes of God. So that when you do not learn the statutes of God, when you disobey God out of your conflicts, sorry, out of your afflictions, those, those conflicts, poverty, sickness, uh, uh, suffering, death, all those afflictions that we go through, when you disobey God, you are... You are acting contrary to, to, to the intended purpose that God has brought the afflictions in your life. Because they are to work for your good. Produce a delight in the law of God that you may learn the statutes of God. Uh, let me remind you once again of our signature text, Romans chapter 8. If you will turn there with me. Verse 28 has been our focus of attention. I'm going to read from verse 26. Romans 8, <clears throat> 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we ought to pray for as we ought. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Sorry. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What I'd like you to remember there is that this is particularly for those who are God's people. Those who have been called according to the purpose of God. Those who love God because he first loved them. So that when we sing, oh, how we love Jesus, it's because he first loved us. And because of, uh, 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 of this first love that God gives to us, now we love him. And therefore, 
because of loving him, we plunge ourselves into these all things that will be working out for our good, even the afflictions that we are considering this morning. Consider with me, number one, that poverty works for the good of God's people. Affliction number one, poverty. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Poverty works for the good of God's people. Should be noted here that we don't want to be poor. We don't want to be poor. We don't want to uh, lack. We work so that we may have, that we may not be poor. But then poverty is a reality. Now I'm saying that we don't want to be poor because uh, this is what we read in Proverbs chapter 30. Um, wise man tells us there that, uh, tells, tells God, uh, do not... Uh, do not keep me from having because I have the ability to hate you. I have the ability to hate you by breaking your commands and going to steal. Proverbs 30 verse 7, two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty no riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So that poverty has the capacity to uh, uh, make sin rise in our hearts. But then, I'm submitting to you this morning that poverty as an affliction comes to God's people and God uses it for their good. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Look at verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. The poverty that they, they have is working out for their good, for the good of others and for their own good that they grow in generosity. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And so you see there that the apostle goes on to say that you are excelling in everything or as you are desiring to excel in everything, desire also that you may excel in this act of grace, this grace of giving. And it is flowing from the affliction and poverty of the Macedonians that we see that Christians can actually be generous even when they are poor, even when they are afflicted by poverty. Poverty works for the good of God's people. It produces in them a desire to give. It should produce in you a desire to give. To know that even though you lack, you don't quite lack. You have something to give. Poverty works for our good. 
in keeping us from complaining and growing us in giving. The Macedonians had all the reasons to complain, to grumble, and not to give, for that matter, because they are poor. But that's not what happens. It works out for their good because it helps them grow in generosity, keeps them from complaining and grows them in giving. Poverty, my friends, works for our good because it helps us know ourselves. Helps us know ourselves because when we have abundance, more often than not, we will not know ourselves. When we are not lacking, we will not know that there is a particular grumbling that is in our hearts. When we have a lot of, a lot of money, we will not know that uh, we are selfish. Because our giving may be a giving out of abundance. When we are poor, God uses it for our good to help us to know our hearts. Now this is important for you so that in case poverty knocks at your door in your lifetime. You know our society is designed to is it's designed to 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 make you think that you can't be poor. Poor people are others and not you. But make no mistake, poverty can knock at your door and you can be poor. When it comes, may it be that it produces in you a love for God, a love for others by giving that which you have, a realization of what is in your heart, whether you are a grumbler or whether you rejoice at all times, giving at all times. Number two, sickness. Sickness works for the good of God's people. Again, I've told you that these things are not easy things. And by easy I mean they're not, they not as simple as I am saying them. People are poor. People are sick. This morning I... I don't want you to... Uh, to think very doctrinally, if I may speak like that. I want you to think very, very experientially. I want you to meditate upon this whole matter of afflictions. And consider that this, this is a serious matter. Sickness. People are dying of sickness. How then can we say that sickness works for the good of God's people? Job, again. Job chapter 1. Job is among the the top people in the scriptures who suffer the most. One could even say that right next to the Lord Jesus Christ is Job. Lord Jesus Christ suffers the most. Job comes right next to him because of all the afflictions that he goes through. So much so that there is a whole book written about his afflictions. And of course to show us that God justifies those whom he calls. In Job chapter 1 and 2, we again have the afflictions that 
job goes through in chapter 2 particularly the health of this saint is attacked job chapter 2 again there was a day when the sons of god came to present themselves before the lord and satan also came among them to present himself before the lord and the lord said to satan from whence have you come satan answered the lord and said from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it and god said to satan have you considered my servant job that there is no one like him on the earth a blameless and upright man who fears god and turns away from evil he still holds fast to his uh, uh, he still holds fast to his integrity although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason please notice the words that the bible uses god is the one that destroys job by the hand of the devil verse 4 then satan answered the lord and said skin for skin all that a man has he will give for his life but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will cast you to your face and the lord said to satan behold he is in your hand only spare his life everything is in god's hand he is he is the one granting permission to our arch enemy so satan went out from the presence of the lord and struck job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes i can't imagine how job looked like then his wife said to him do you still hold fast your integrity cast god and die but he said to her you speak as one of the foolish women uh, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak shall we receive good from god and shall we not receive evil job's theology of suffering was robust although because he's a man later on in the book we see him complaining but there's a sense in which he did understand that god god's hand is in his sickness his suffering that he is going through that's then telling his is his wife there do not be foolish as it were don't speak like those ones and then you're told there in all this job did not sin with his lips now i'd like you to notice there that job is loyal to god the sickness that he goes through produces a particular loyalty to god he's not going to curse god as his wife suggests rather he's going to glorify god and as we're told there he did not sin with his lips he's going to instead of cursing god he will bless the lord and that takes that takes us back to chapter 1 in chapter 1 you're told that job says the lord gave and end of end of uh, verse 21 there the lord has taken away and what comes out of his mouth that blessing the lord blessed be the name of the lord instead of doing what his wife suggests to him he does the opposite to bless the lord suffering produces loyalty to god in this case sickness the sickness that he goes through does not cause him to curse god rather it causes him to bless 
God. Now, where does your loyalty lie? Are you loyal to God or are you loyal to your health? And you know what I'm talking about. When people become sick and they are on the verge of dying or when your people become sick and you start struggling with a sick person with a terminal illness for the rest of their lives they are sick you live with them. Are you loyal to God or are you loyal to the health of this person? Because what people do is, is, is what? They start grumbling. They start acting as though it's, a, they, it's such a terrible thing that they, they are going through. As though their lives would have been so much better if the person that they have, they live with, who is sick, was healthy. Their loyalty is in health. Sickness produces or works for the good of God's people in this manner produces a particular loyalty to God. It helps us to to say I know my God is good. He is going to heal me. He has the ability to do it. And even if he doesn't even if he doesn't my loyalty is to him. See sickness produces good or works for the good of God's people in the sense that it silences the wicked when they see that we love God more than we love our health. When they see that we love God more than anything else really that we may own. These these afflictions that the evil one brings to Job They work for the good of Job and that they, they prove God's word to be true because God tells, uh, tells the devil that this is an upright man. Now, I, don't want to, I don't want to make it seem as though you are Job and, <laughs> and the devil is coming to you. And, but out of the experiences of these saints of old, we learn something. that our loyalty to God, even when we are afflicted with sickness, silences the mouths of evildoers. We are not only loyal to God because we, we are healthy, because we are rich. We are loyal to God regardless of the afflictions that we face. And that's the good that it produces. That is the good that it works out for the believer, in the believer. That last uh, statement there in verse 10 of chapter 2, Job, Job chapter 2 verse 10, last phrase there says, In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Sickness works for our good. Really, the afflictions that we, we go through work for our good because they help us to hate sin. To hate sin. For Job not to sin with his lips is an indication that he hates sin. He realizes that this, this affliction, this sickness, has the capacity to make him sin. And therefore we are told there that in all this, 
Job did not sin with his lips. Number three, we have death. Death works for the good of God's people. Poverty, sickness. Number three, death. Death works for the good of God's people. Go with me to John chapter 11. John 11. You know that this is the story of um, Lazarus. Let me quickly read for you in the beginning there. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and his and, and, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped her feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now notice there the, the intermingling of sickness and death. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, him whom you love is ill. Verse 4. But when Jesus heard, heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. So the Son of God may be glorified through it. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Verse 15, And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. Please notice that language. So that you may believe for your sake. I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go <laughs> that we may die with him. Now the passage before us is an interesting passage. Now, surface reading of it is a it's a normal story someone has uh, someone is sick help is uh, called for person who can help does not come in time and the person dies end of the story is it is, is it the end of the story that story or that account tells us that Jesus delays to go on purpose. Jesus realizes that this illness is working out for the good of God's people. And this is how it is working out for the good of God's people. Verse 4. This illness does not lead to death. 
it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. It's working for the good of God's people in helping them to glorify God. So that when people become sick, what you've just finished considering, the glory of God is at stake in how they respond in the sickness that they are facing, they're going through. This sickness is working out for the good of God's people. In this sense, verse 14, Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. It's working out for the good of God's people because it causes death. It causes death and it's working out for the good of God's people because it helps these people to know where the power lies. Lazarus has died and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. It's working out for the good of God's people that the people of God may trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they may believe upon him, that they may see his power, that they may come to him that they may embrace Him, that they may walk with Him. This is how it is working for their good. That they may glorify God. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus goes on to tell these people that I am the resurrection and the life. I am the one who grants life. Death works for the good of God's people because it helps them to completely trust upon God. Trust upon Christ. And I've just written here in my notes that sometimes we cling too much to the people that God has given us. Hmm? And God takes them to help us cling more to Him. Sometimes we cling too much to the people that God has given us. And God takes them from us to help us cling more to Him. And that is how it produces good. That is how it works for the good of God's people. Death comes to remind us that this world is not forever. You know, when we say forever and ever, it's not this world. But this world is passing. It's not our home. Death comes to lose our hearts from this world. To snatch us from the love of the world. Grants us hope that this is not the end. Death comes to grant the people of God hope. To know that this is not the end. And in the face of the afflictions that we face, the afflictions that we go through in life, death helps us to hope in God. To know that even the afflictions that we go through will pass. They will pass. They will end. There's another life awaiting us. Death helps us to look forward to that life. So that when the Lord Jesus Christ raises Lazarus, He says, this, this, this illness is not going to lead to death. And, and the death that Jesus is referring to there is eternal condemnation. Death works for the good of God's people because it reassures them that God has promised eternal life to His people and He will give it to them. Every time someone in your family dies, a friend dies, a close person dies, it ought to remind you that there is a day that is coming with no more death. 
with no more pain of sickness. There's a time that is coming when Christ will appear. And when Christ appears, everything else will not matter. Not even the best things. They won't matter. Because we will have the best of the best. The worst things will be vanquished. That's what death does for the good of God's people. That's what it produces. It, it, it helps us hope in God, trust in Christ, cling to him more and more, removing us from the, clutch, uh, 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 from the clinches of this world. Number four, desertion. Number one, poverty. Number two, sickness. Number three, death. Number four, desertion works for the good of God's people. Desertion works for the good of God's people. Let's go to this famous story in Genesis. Genesis 37. <clears throat> you well know the story of Joseph if you read your Bible. We are told of <clears throat> how Joseph was, was a dreamer and he got these dreams from God. And when he was telling these dreams to his family, they hated him. They, they didn't like them. And then we are told that uh, um, Joseph's father sends him. His brothers are out there um, pasturing the flock. Uh, his father sends him to go take, them, take, take food to them. Um, the brothers see him. They, they see him from afar. Verse 18 of Genesis 37 says they saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the, one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we will see what will become of his dreams. These are not people that are seeking the good of their brother. In fact, they are seeking the worst, death. They are seeking death upon him. But when Reuben had it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but not lay a hand on him, that he might, uh, uh, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they strip, stripped him of his robe, of many colors that he wore and they and they took him and threw him into a pit the pit was empty and there was no water in it then they sat down to eat and looking up they saw a caravan of ishmaelites coming from gilead with their camels bearing gum balm and mar on their way to carry it down to egypt then judah said to his brothers what profit is it if we, if we kill our brother and conceal his blood come let us sell him to the ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother our own flesh and his brothers listened to him then midianite traders passed by they drew joseph up lift and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver they took joseph to egypt so this, this, the story there tells tells us that these brothers are not so pleased with, with the young boy, Joseph. They decide to kill him, but 
and then they reason with one another, reason, yeah, in quotes, and then they say, let us, let us sell him. They desert their brother. They leave him. They abandon him. And then you know how the story goes. He goes to Egypt, um, gets into favor with Potiphar. Um, Potiphar's wife tries to lay with him. He denies. He's imprisoned. He comes out of prison. He becomes great in, uh, in, 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 in Egypt. His brothers come back. At the end of the book, we're told... In Genesis 15. So the brothers have come back. They've, there's been the famine. They, they've come to seek for, for food. They do not know who Joseph was. They find him as the, the greatest man there in the whole world. And then they, they seek for help. They get the help. And the story goes on and on. And then lastly, we are told in Genesis 50, 15. When Joseph's brother saw that their father was dead, they said... It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. All the evil that we did to him. So these men realize that they, they did an evil to their brother sometime back. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of your servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept and they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in, go am I in the place of God? Verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Now, the, the thing that I'd like you to notice in this, in this verse 20, it's that there are two wills here. There is the will of his, of, of his brothers, which is to destroy him, and there is the will of God which is at the same time working for the good of Joseph. You see, when the, when, uh, when the brothers are meaning evil, doing that which is evil to their brother, God is doing good out of this desertion that his brothers give. Desertion works for our good by helping us to trace God's purposes in all of it. It helps us to trace the purposes of God. And this is what Joseph does. Joseph realizes that while my brothers are doing evil and evil to me, God is also doing something else through this evil. And that is for my good. And so then he says there, as for you, uh, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So that God is working those things out for the good of Joseph and for the good of others that they may benefit from this act of the evil men all things work together for the good of God's people even the evil things things like desertion even though we may not quite understand why why people abandon us why people treat us the way they do all things work together for the good of God's people so that if you if you face any sort of abandonment or desertion it ought to come to you as an encouragement that while it may be painful God is working it out for your good 
while others may be working evil for you, God is working it out for the good of his people. We know that in the grand scheme of things, Joseph is a type of Christ, so that while people are working an evil against Christ, they do not know that God is performing the greatest good for his people. So that desertion, death, sickness, poverty, work out for the good of God's people. Desertion works for the good of God's people because it helps us be rid of trusting men. It helps us to know that men are not to be trusted. That humans are fickle. That we are, are, are fickle people. If you trust people and you put your complete trust in them, what, what will they do? They will desert you. And you will be left there complaining and bitter. God calls us to... Sorry, God uses desertion for our good by reminding us that people are not to be trusted. The Bible says that a mother, a mother can forget her child. People are fickle. They should not be trusted. Now, I'm not saying that you... <laughs> If you have a husband, you don't trust him. If you have a wife, you don't trust her. If you have parents, you don't trust them. You, you, you are constantly scrutinizing them. To That's not what I'm saying. All I'm saying is that cast is he who trusts in man. All our trust ought to be in God. If Joseph's trust would have been in his brothers, oh, what a shame. What disappointment would be upon his face to see them coming while they had done the evil that they had done. He would be there saying, you guys, I trusted you, and this is what you did to me. I, I, I was bringing food for you, and this is how you treated me. Out of my presence, away with you. But that's not how Joseph reacts. Joseph knows that while evil men in their wickedness work for the evil of God's people, God, God is working for the good of his people. He's working to ensure that good is working out for his people. A trust in him, a dependence upon him, a, a being rid of tr the trust of men, a, the ability to see God's purposes in all that we go through. So too much expectation from sinners is not good. If you expect too much from your fellow sinners, it's not good for you. Here in desertion, you have conflicts which God bring again to rid us of the trust of men. You realize that when people conflict, there is a form of desertion that happens. A form of neglect. And abandonment. God uses it to help us not to trust in people. To help us to trust in him. To help us to see that there is a good that God is working. There is a way that God expects me to live as, a, as his person. In the midst of this desertion that I may be facing. People have been abandoned by their parents. 
been abandoned by their spouses, been abandoned by their children. Uh, yeah, parents have been abandoned by their children, left to perish in their old age. But even that, God is working it out, the good of his people. Let me lastly bring to you that discipline works for the good of God's people. Discipline. Discipline is a form of affliction. And it works for the good of God's people. Last text that I'd like us to consider here is in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> now, what I'd like you to see here is that the, the, the affliction of discipline works for our good because it reveals that God loves us. It reveals the love of God to us. This is what I'd like us to see here in Hebrews chapter 12. God may as well leave us to perish in our sins, but he doesn't. And you know, when I say leave us, I mean his people. God doesn't leave his people to perish in their sins. Just yesterday, I received a message from a brother who was excommunicated. The church met. The church decided that this brother is sinning and has refused to repent. And the church excommunicated him for a long time. I tell you, I think it could be five years because it was way before we came to Meru. And we have been in Meru for three years now. Can't remember when, but it may be five years ago that the church excommunicated this man. Yesterday, he texted me. He told me he was restored. He went back. He asked for the forgiveness of the church. He asked God to forgive him. Oh, you may be asking why did he text me? He's a man that I was struggling with to show him that he's sinning and that he needs to repent and turn back to Christ and forsake his sins. And he refused. He refused. He continued to refuse. He was disciplined. And God brought him back. The affliction of discipline works for the good of God's people. God may leave us to our own devices. Isn't that what God has done to the unbelievers? He has left them to their evilness let them to perish they continue with their evil deeds Romans chapter 1 and God has left them to their devices but oh how good God is to his people by granting them the affliction of discipline Hebrews chapter 12 verse 7 it is for discipline that you have to endure God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? What son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? If the father loves him, he's going to discipline. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, 
then you are illegitimate children and not sons. God does not love you if you're not disciplined, if you continue in your sins. If the evil of affliction is not coming upon you, if the affliction of discipline is not coming to you, you are an illegitimate child, even though you may think that you are a child of God. The writer to the Hebrews is essentially saying that if you are not disciplined, if the affliction of discipline doesn't come to you, you are not a child of God. You are illegitimate. Verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for what? For our good. That we may share his holiness. Right there you have how the affliction of discipline is working for the good of God's people. That they may share in his holiness. That they may be like him. For the moment, says in verse 11, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later... Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God works for the good of his people in the worst things, even the afflictions that they face, the affliction of discipline. So that when we are disciplined, it actually shows that we are God's children. There's a sense in which all that we have considered now is intertwined. All that we've considered in all the above matters, in one way or another, they relate to, to each other. The good that is produced by one, one of the things that we have considered, may well be produced by another of them. So the good that is produced by, by illness is a good that may be produced by death. And it's a good that may be produced by poverty. It's a good that may be produced by desertion. And it's a good that may be produced by discipline. They're intertwined like that. Really, the afflictions that we face are working for our good. You may not have known it, but now you know how to think about them. If you struggle to understand how they work for your good, ask God to help you. That's why God has given us prayer. Tell God, God, help me understand how this is working for my good. Because I am a sinful man. I'm prone to complain and grumble. I'm, pr I'm prone to not see how this evil of affliction, how this worst thing of death and poverty and sickness, I'm prone to not see how it's working for my good. Help me to see how it's working for my good. Sorry, but I'd like to finish. But before that, go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Lastly, lastly, Second Corinthians 4, Paul speaks of this treasure that is in jars of clay. Let me, let me just quickly read this text to you. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. 
but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. We ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. With, with ourselves as, servants, as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have these treasures, tre this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted. This is what I want you to see now. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair persecuted but not forsaken struck down but not destroyed always carrying in the body of death uh, in the body of the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies we go through suffering and this is how we respond we are afflicted we are not crushed we are perplexed we are not driven to despair, we are persecuted, we are not forsaken, we are struck down, we are not destroyed. And then we are told there, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Listen to what the Apostle is saying. We are given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in, in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believe and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to you more and more, uh, more and more people, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Look at verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Verse 17. For this light momentary affliction, this should be the attitude of the Christian. The affliction that we go through is light. It is momentary. Momentary. This light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. And the reason I bring this to you is to say that afflictions have an ultimate purpose. And the ultimate purpose of the afflictions that we go through, the ultimate good that they produce is a longing for eternity. A longing for, for the believers to be with God forever and ever. So that when we consider that the worst things work for the good of God's people, ultimately they work for their good by helping them to desire to be with God forever and ever. So with regard to our afflictions, 
We ought to sing with the hymn writer. Whatever my God ordains is right. His holy will abideth. I will be still whatever he does and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to him I leave it all. And so to him I leave it all. Whatever my God ordains is right. He never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know he will not leave me. I take content what he has sent. His hand can turn my griefs away. And patiently I wait his day. And patiently I wait his day. Whatever my God ordains is right. Though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart, I take it all unshrinking. My God is true, each morn anew. Sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. And pain and sorrow shall depart. Whatever my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. It is around me in all those things. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to Him, I leave it all. And so to Him, I leave it all. May this be our posture when we consider the afflictions that we face because all things work together for the good of God's people. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as we are seeing this morning, all things work together for the good of your people. Really, as we have seen the whole of this month, nothing comes our way that you have not brought that it may produce good in us, that it may work for our good, even though we may not see it. We ask that you may help us to trust you, to leave everything, lay everything at your feet, to know that you are good. Indeed, you are good. So that we may completely put our trust in you. Really, this is one of those things that show us that you are a sovereign God. This means that you work however you please. But then it's a, it's a comforting truth to consider that you, O oh Lord, care for your people so much so that while sin has ravaged this world, you are working in divine providence, preserving and governing all your creatures and all their actions. And really everything that is going on in this world, you are working it out, fashioning it for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. Oh, help us to entrust ourselves to you. As to a God who always cares for us. To know that while in the end all things bring glory to your name, it is such a privilege to be called your people because you will work those things for the good of them that are called according to your purpose 
them that love you. Please help us with these things. Bless us to understand them more and more, deeper and deeper. For these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.